Good evening once again. Does anyone have anything on their mind that they'd like to start us off with? Yes. Yeah. Well, I just need to be uh, painting while I'm following my breath. You seem to be... Painting. I'm an artist. Okay. You're, you're painting while you're yeah. following your breath. Yeah. Uh-huh. Painting my own face, painting what I was painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that thinking... That's kind of thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you're thinking sort of a, a, a catch-all word for a lot of different kinds of mental activities. It's the hand and, and the eye. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's not too distracting, but I'd like to stop it. <laughs> well, Any suggestions? What I would suggest is that, first of all, you... Uh, you You'd like to stop it. So, first of all, is that you not try to actually suppress it. You know how it is when you've got a tune going through your head and you yeah, go away. Yeah, it's very much like that. It, yeah, it's that yeah. kind of thing. And uh, you're far better off to take the approach that if it wants to be there, you're going to let it be there, but you are not going to pay attention to it. It'll just be there in the background if it wants to be. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so, and the, the wonderful thing about that is, well, what's going to happen is it is going to go away. But even if it didn't, it wouldn't matter anymore because you're successfully keeping your attention on the meditation object on your breath. So it doesn't really make any difference. But it will go away if you do that. You're welcome. Anyone else have anything on their mind? Yes. Um, are, there, are there techniques for the person for, for trying to um, trigger insight? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, you've been um, watching for the impact of breath and observing the impact of breath is a fallacy. It's a mind label and not findable. Thing. Are there any other triggers like that that you would suggest for deliberately trying to trigger insights into those nature of the experience? Yes. That, well, there's, uh, there are a number of. Oh, oh yes, repeat. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So uh, the question was about. Uh, Things, ways that you can practice uh, that will help to trigger insight. Insight into uh, impermanence, emptiness, uh, non-self, uh, and suffering. Uh, insight into uh, dependent origination in the sense that everything is a result of causes and conditions and also in the sense of understanding exactly the process the mind goes through in continuously, moment to moment, generating the reality that you find yourself in. So these are the insights that we're talking about. And so the question, Brian's question, was about uh, other things, he mentioned one thing, about other things that we can do to help to uh, trigger those insights. There are, there are a variety of well-known and often practiced methods. Um, and being that what you're after is coming to that place where the mind can confront the reality that lies beyond its own projections, that you can also come up with your own. And uh, also, sometimes the, uh, it will be something totally unexpected. So, uh, I'll present to you some different ways that that can happen. But keep in mind that uh, it's really, you know, it, it's, it's sort of wide open. The reality that you're after is right there in front of you all of the time. It's just getting getting to the point where the 
particular activity of the mind in the immediate moment allows it to uh, to register. So, so one way is very very closely following uh, anything, but the sensations of the breath are a very good example of that. You follow them as closely as you can so that uh, at some point uh, in the case of the sensations of the breath, those particular sensations uh, you you begin to see them more and more as they really are. For example, one of the sensations that you might find is that sensation of impact. And another one that you might find that there is the one that you call coolness. If you look at them closely enough, though, you find that there really is no impact. There is there is a phenomenon that your mind interprets based on its past experience as the impact of the air on the nostrils. Likewise, coolness. There really there, it, uh, there doesn't exist any such thing as coolness except in your mind. Your mind is an interpretation of a kind of sensory data. And if you look really closely, you'll begin to be aware of the sensory data that your mind is identifying in this way, labeling in this way. And you'll start to have the experience that, well, there's just these unnameable uh, phenomenon continuously changing and the mind is slapping as fast as they can up the mind is slapping these labels on the impact and coolness and movement and things like that <coughs> and generally what happens is that, that the, the mind is going to tend to recoil from that because it's a sensation like there being no ground anymore and so it will go back to that place where, oh yes, there's solid, recognized, that, that's the breath, and that's the nose, that's the, and all these labels come up, but you can't help but see that happening, because, you know, in the kind of concentration, and concentrated mindful state you're in, the mind can do what it normally does, which is exactly that, but you can't help but see that it's doing it. And this, this will bring you into a very acute awareness both of the meaning of impermanence in the sense of there is only process, continual change. And then it will also uh, bring you into awareness that whatever perception you have does not have any actual correspondence to anything outside of your mind. It's okay. So, this is one way in which you can begin to get a, a, a direct experience of the meaning of impermanence and the meaning of emptiness. Um, another kind of practice is to watch closely the way that specific discrete phenomena arise and pass away. So that. Um, uh, Sounds, for example, sounds lend themselves particularly well to this, but tactile sensations and other kinds of sensations work as well. Um, but with the sound, you will become aware that, um, first of all, just uh, that what you normally regard as a identifiable sound on close examination isn't a sound, but it is a sequence of other sounds. It's not one sound, it's many sounds. And then as you continue to observe, you'll notice how the mind makes its own construct from this, which is that uh, when a sound impacts on the sense organ and there is the immediate registration of that, that the mind holds on to that. It's like 
an echo or a reverberation. And the next, you know, the next sensory event follows, and each one follows right one right after another. And you'll catch your mind in the act of saving these and stacking them up together so that it comes up with an identifiable whole. So if you, you know, you're, you're listening to, for example, you might be deep, this, this is just sort of a, a, a just so fairy tale story, but it could happen perhaps that you're sitting there in deep retreat and it's rain. And so now, there, and the rain has stopped, and now the water is dripping off the roof, and you can hear the drip, the drip, the drip, the drip. And you can focus on that, and you can begin to see that the way that the sound of a single drip um, actually has several parts to it, and it's your mind holding on to them so that they overlap and they build up a temporal picture that your mind then recognizes. And because, you know, the drip happens over and over again, maybe if it was just one sound, you wouldn't be able to do that. But because it happens over and over again, you start to notice, you go into it more deeply, you you notice it more and more, until you begin to see the way that sounds arise and, and pass away and become constructed into recognizable entities in your life. This might lead you to, for example, examine all of your other sensations. (coughs) And, of course, when you do that, you'll you'll see that each of these parts just comes into being and then disappears. And then the next part in the sequence comes into being and disappears. So the nature of all of your sensations which, if you investigate and begin to discover it, is they have a particular quality of the way they arise and the way, the kind of endurance that they have and then the way that they pass away. Now, by contrast with this, you might notice that mental phenomena have their own unique and different way of arising, enduring, and passing away. I won. (laughs) Um, So, and and your mind might shift then to that, the thoughts arising. But even more, it might notice that uh, there's a a sensation, say the sensation of of the in-breath, maybe the impact of air at the end of the in-breath. And you'll see the mind's mental act of recognition. And you'll see that that recognition has its own, it arises, it has its momentary endurance, and then it passes away in its own special way. And you can watch that happening as well. Sometimes what happens as a result of watching mental phenomena pass away is you have this really kind of scary sensation and realization that uh, you've been going through your life thinking that you were somehow this activity of the mind, this sequence of mental uh, recognitions, identifications that constantly arise and pass away. And you see that when they're gone, they're totally gone. And this might begin to have that same sense of impermanence and the sense of reality being a process rather than a collection of things suddenly apply to your mind. And therefore, from your mind, this might carry over to yourself. And you see that just as the world is a hypothetical construct that is the result of your mind generating these identifications and imposing them on sensation, which is a constantly changing flux, you start to see that the same thing is true of mental phenomena, that there's just this constant flux. Nothing lasts. Everything changes. Always something new, rising and passing away. 
and you can become absorbed into watching that until the realization just suddenly hits you that, well, yes, and that's all there is to the mind, and that's all there is to the sense, to, to the sense of self. That the mind is, the mind itself is nothing but a construct imposed upon this continuous flux of mental phenomena arising and passing away. And even more profoundly disturbing, but illuminating, is that that the self, even more so, is nothing but a construct that is extracted from this flux of mental, uh, mental events. And so this is how you can begin to come to understand the, uh, the nature of mind and self, not as things or substances, but also as process, and also as process with no substantial identity other than with that which the mind itself is constantly generating by which to to deal with it, to identify with it, to make it uh, workable and, and useful. So, in terms of the methodology here, it is it is really very similar. What you're doing is you're examining reality, which is the constant flow of the present moment, which is nothing but experience. And your focus in this is on uh, the objects of consciousness that constitute experience in any given moment. And so whether you're focusing on sensations or whether you're focusing on mental phenomena, uh, these are really the only two uh, categories of object of consciousness that there are. And so what you're doing is intensively investigating objects of consciousness until they begin to reveal their, their own nature in this way. They begin to reveal that their, their nature as process rather than as any kind of an enduring uh, thing or object or substance. And their nature as being whatever the mind projects on that rather than having any sort of intrinsic, uh, internal, inherent self-nature. Now, from this point, there's several other directions that you can take as well. Um, let me just give you one other that uh, best reveals itself in kind of a deep meditative state. And this is where you now in each moment of experience, there are two parts to it. There is the duality of consciousness and object of consciousness. And as a matter of fact, this consciousness is known as, <coughs> as vijnana or vijnana. And the prefix vi, uh, several ways it can be translated, but jnana uh, or nana means knowledge, and vijnana means uh, uh, separate or distinct or other knowledge. And even this word is revealing that each moment of conscious experience as it unfolds always has these two parts. One is the consciousness and the other is the object of consciousness. And what you've been examining up to this point is the object of consciousness, which is either mental or sensation, and you will have been discovering that it is always not thing but process, 
and it is always uh, without any nature or identity other than what the mind constructs, and we will have seen the mind constructing that, the seated process by which it occurs. But now what you can do is you can do sort of a, a foreground, background switch. <clears throat> anyway, you can make the shift from one half of the duality to the other. Instead of focusing so much on the objects of consciousness, you just let them go, let them come and go, let them be, let them arise and pass away. And instead, you <coughs> try to let co- that let consciousness in the moment become aware of itself as the field in which these objects appear and disappear. You know what I'm saying there? Okay, that's it's on. Um, when your mind is really stable uh, and you've been able to focus on the objects arising and passing away, uh, it, it then becomes possible to make this kind of shift. I mean, you can have the intention, the resolve arise in your mind to you might ask yourself uh, 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 the question of uh, what what is consciousness? What is the mind? Um, what is the nature of uh, of, of the knower, the, the gnosis, the uh, cognition that's taking place? And just try to direct your awareness to that until it starts to become clear. It becomes clear in proportion that you allow the sensations and the various mental objects to pass through awareness without without the mind trying to grasp onto them. So the degree that you can just let them be, let them flow, let them, you know, uh, as I uh, Gertrude Rinpoche says, I'm not sure he may get this from someone else, probably does, but I, I like the terminology is that you liberate the object the instant it arises. So, that the, so there's no, you know, you, you let it go the instant it arises, so there's no grasping onto it. To the degree that you can succeed in doing this, then to that degree you become aware of the, of the consciousness as the ground in which this is taking place. And as you continue to practice in this way, um, once again, there are a number of things that you'll discover. Uh, one of them is that you'll discover that this conscious ground in which the objects arise and pass away, or at this point, you know, you're already aware of them as only appearances. So you're sitting there. Uh, now I, I didn't mention this, but you're not doing this in a kind of microscopic, focused way that maybe you're examining the sensations of the breath that I examined, that I talked about earlier, or listening to a sound. You're letting them come and go the way the mind naturally treats them. So the dripping of the rain of, of raindrops off the roof becomes. You, you just go ahead, let it be sound plus identification plus whatever mental reaction. And the sensations of your breath, you just let them be whatever they they are. You're not, you know, you, it, it's a very, instead of the microscope now, it's this, this open, let it be however it is, because you're not interested in the appearances themselves as they arise and pass away. You're, you're interested in the consciousness within which these whatever appears arises and passes away. Yes? Is it, is it what you just described um, an expanded mind where everything is available and without any specific focus and you have it right in front of you? It is the question, is it an expanded mind expanded without mind, any yeah. particular yeah. focus? Yeah, yes, exactly. 
If your mind is completely still, you see, your mind is, your mind in terms of the function of conscious awareness is very much like your eye is. If you hold your eye really still, which most of us don't know what that actually means, but if you do hold your eye really still, the only thing that you can really see is what's in about an area like this in the middle of your visual field. And everything else is is just sort of a, an indistinguishable, not very clear blur, which your mind normally fills in from, uh, you know, uh, your, your eyes move about and it stores these images, and so when you're holding your eyes still, it seems like you can see this larger area. But in fact, if you hold your eye really still, you'll find that you can only see, uh, you know, physiologically, this is because all of the receptors are kind of concentrated in one place in the center of the retina of your eyes, which your uh, pupils then focus the light on that area. So that's what you can really see in detail. And you can't really, you're not really seeing the rest of it. Conscious awareness is very much the same thing. So if you can bring your mind to a state of stillness, you're not focusing on anything. And of course, anything can pass through that field of awareness. And the important thing is you keep the, the mind still, the consciousness still. So yes, it's as expanded as it can be. But uh, it's, it has its limits. It's, it's still circumscribed. So it's stationary. It's expanded. Uh, it, and so what you're doing is you're, you're being with what's immediately presented to consciousness. And by keeping the attention stable and by keeping consciousness open rather than focusing in on something like keeping that expansiveness, that spaciousness, that breadth in your consciousness, then you can be you can, like I say, have this or begin to have awareness of the consciousness that is the ground that the appearance was sort of rising and passing away. Okay. Now what you can see one of the things that you will discover in the process of that is it will become really obvious that those things that appear and disappear are of the same nature as, as the, the ground, as the consciousness uh, in which they arise and pass away. So as a crude analogy, it's like a wave is of the same nature as the, uh, as the body of water in which it ar- arises and disappears again. It's not different from it and distinct from it. And you realize that all appearances are of the same nature. Now you've already had some experience of discovering, investigating these uh, appearances themselves, and you see how there is a mental activity that generates the mind objects, and then the sensations are, uh, you know, are nothing but a constant flow, and you realize that the sensations themselves are the same essential stuff as the consciousness that is aware of them. And then the mental objects that appear that seem to account for the sensations are once again of that same stuff. And then once again, another kind of shift occurs that that because your focus is on the consciousness and you're seeing that the appearances are of the same nature as the consciousness itself, then the, the reciprocal of that or the, yeah, it, however you want to describe it, becomes equally obvious. That consciousness itself is of the same nature as these appearances. That if one is the same as the other, then, then the other is the same as the first. And this 
here you're getting into some uh, into really deep insight, really profound insight. But you have to be, for all of these things I've described, you need to have a pretty good degree of concentration and mindful awareness. So, to be able to get deeply into the unfolding of sensations, you know, that takes a lot of focus and a lot of awareness. Uh, and you have to stick at it. Because you start off and the your mind... Your mind has uh, all of your life been dedicated to the singular task of taking uh, a flow of constantly changing sensory information and organizing it and labeling it to make sense and make a world out of it. So, however long you live, if you're 20 years old or 60 years old or whatever it is, that's how long your mind has been doing this one thing. So when you have the concentration and the focus, you've got to have the patience to keep looking deeper and deeper because your mind will keep backing off from that and going back to, yes, well, let's make sense out of this. And it'll want to say, yeah, 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 that's fine, but yeah, let's get, let's get back to reality. So it takes a lot of patience. It will, it will emerge. All of these things require good concentration. You've got to be really wide awake. You can't be in a, in a sort of blissful, dozy state waiting for something wonderful to happen. You are the investigator. You have to be in a place of you know, penetrating, uh, in pursuit of that penetrating understanding. And you have to you have to have patience. Uh, and it's a good thing to realize that what you're working against is the mind is always trying to abandon the present and to get into its own creations. You know? And so it's as though your mind is always saying, yeah, yeah, okay, let's move on. But there is no place to move on to except the fantasy world of the mind. And so you're, you're keeping, what you're trying to do is to keep coming back to the unfolding of your reality moment by moment as it actually is. And it really doesn't matter what you focus on. Whatever is arising in your consciousness, that is your reality. And so you're trying to understand it, to see the nature of it as it. Yes, sir. Just to ask, is it, like, do you think babies or infants are, are generally in a state of non-duality? Is, is what? Do you think babies are in a state of non-duality? Or babies. Or babies? Infants. In a state of non-duality? That's a very interesting question. But they haven't had much time to develop these habits. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's right. That is... Uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, I think they, they probably are to, uh, to a certain degree. But we all, there's a difference between being in a state of non-duality and having the nature of that non-duality be known. Okay? Because uh, in a very deep state of sleep, there is a kind of consciousness present, but without any object. And so it is a kind of non-duality. And actually it seems the same thing is true in uh, deep states of anesthesia, uh, that there is consciousness there. And sometimes people even can be can't, there can be objects of consciousness and recollections of things that happen in anesthesia. So it's not that it's not that being in a state of non-duality by itself is is adequate to the task of realization. Somehow, somehow the non-duality has to be 
known to consciousness in a way that registers and produces a transformation in the way the mind works subsequently? It's a good question. Are you saying non-duality doesn't equal awareness? Uh, I'm saying that the experience of non-duality doesn't necessar- isn't necessarily going to be recognized by the mind in such a way that it transforms the way the mind functions thereafter. So, uh, yeah, that's right. What we're after here, you go back to, you know, vijnana or vijnana, uh, where jnana means uh, knowledge and v means other or separate. The when you when you un, when when you have a cognitive event where uh, here language falls down somewhat, you have a cognitive event where the only thing that corresponds to an object is the fact of emptiness or the fact of objectlessness. Okay? So that's that's a, a special kind of knowing. And that's that's what we're after because that then that registers on the mind and changes it. And, and that's what we're after. We want to we want to become realized. We want to become awakened. We want the mind to start operating on the basis of understanding more fully the true nature of reality rather than being perpetually trapped in the uh, in the illusion that it has been creating to try to account for experience. So you could call it, instead of vijnana, you could call it sunyata jnana, knowledge of emptiness. There's an experience that I've had when I'm looking at an infant. For one thing, they they seem incredibly present. Mm -hmm. And and another, when when you look into their eyes, there's a kind of recognition, a kind of contact um, that... I think gets kind of distorted mm-hmm. later on in our lives because of all the illusion that we're dealing with that we're misinterpreting mm-hmm. as reality. Mm-hmm. And children don't, uh, infants don't seem to get confused with that stuff. Like I do. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. I, I, I think that that's probably true. I, I think that I think that something happens when uh, when a new sentient being, a baby, comes into existence, but the supports for that sentience are not fully developed. It's in a kind of state where it's uh, it's tuning into, but not yet enmeshed in what we might call the uh, uh, the shared mentality of, of the rest of us. Shared illusion. The shared illusion. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, the, the shared mentality uh, is, is an illusion. But this is a lot of what an infant's going through. And uh, and in the real world, an infant is absorbing a huge amount of information from the other beings around. Now, we can see that at the physical level. I think that's also happening at a very subtle uh, psychological, a psychic level, or a, you know, uh, at a level that uh, corresponds to a dimension that we, that in the present state of uh, Western science and uh, ordinary way of perceiving things that we don't really have an understanding of. 
but uh, an infant is becoming a particular kind of being and it's extracting uh, all kinds of information and predispositions from uh, a sort of uh, psychic space uh, that we no longer tap into at all because we, we, we've already absorbed and assimilated and made all our interconnections to that so the only way we interconnect with a shared mentality is through all of the established ways of being that, that we already identify with as ourselves. I think a lot about... I'm getting distracted now, but it's interesting. I think a lot about the things that happen uh, when, uh, both when a sentient being uh, loses the support in the form of the body and, and mind, the five aggregates, as they break up. And likewise, what happens when a new being uh, comes into existence as matter is, is organized and a new mind is generated in that. One of the things that is very, very interesting is that uh, children, particularly under the age of about five, often seem to be able to uh, directly access uh, memories or uh, yeah, mem- memories of other human beings that they are not. And that's, that's quite an amazing thing. So I, I, do, I do think and, and try to explore that particular dimension that um, there, is a, there is a connectedness that we all have at a level that we're not aware of when we're trapped in our separate selfhood. But anyway, this is a, a, a significant digression from what it was talking about. Maybe I'll res- res- resort to the original question here to see where, where can we go next with, uh, with this. I think most of the things I just described to you, you've already heard. Already talked about it other times. What? To some degree, but it's always good to hear. So it's good to hear it again. Okay. Um, Other sources of insight, particularly into the process of uh, dependent origination and the 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 way that the mind creates reality, are more easily achieved not when you're sitting in total stillness in a quiet place that it can be achieved in that circumstance, but when there is a greater degree of activity, uh, definitely mental and perhaps physical as well. So, and what's involved here is becoming aware of the experiential flow of events. The eternal present that we're always in is constantly changing and it changes in particular definable and recognizable ways. One of which I already talked about that you could observe in meditation that you examine sensations you see how the mind extracts patterns from the sensations and puts labels on identifications. But the other thing is that uh, we have experiences, and you don't need to examine them at this fine level of detail we talked about earlier, but you have experiences of a more ordinary level of perception. And you'll notice that they are followed immediately by not only perception, but a certain affective quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And you can you can practice this kind of insight uh, while you're doing walking meditation, or even while you're engaged in daily activities that uh, allow you sufficient 
uh, introspective awareness and, and focus. Um, as a matter of fact, the stronger your mindfulness becomes, the more you can carry the, the more complex the activities could be that you're engaged in. And so, exercise this process of, of introspective mindfulness. But what you'll see will become very clear is the sequence of something arises, maybe a, 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 in the nature of a, 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 a physical event involving bodily sensations, or it may be a mental event, the arising of a memory or a thought or an idea or, or something like that. And you'll see that it immediately evokes uh, an, an affective response. And we, we can say that that always happens by simply defining uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant as an affective response. The, this way, we cover all possibilities. <laughs> so it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And there's no other possibility. What's really significant in this, though, is that, that there is a secondary response or reaction of the mind to whatever that effect is, you know, in terms of desire or aversion. And even, even a neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant effect can trigger uh, desire or aversion. You know, we can experience uh, disappointment or boredom with the lack of effect of what has just arisen and therefore grasp to a new experience that uh, you'll hope has a positive effect. But anyway, you can see this happen in your mind. You can see, you know, experience of whatever kind. And you can see the complex relations. Okay, there's a sensation. Ah, it feels good. There's a labeling and recognition of it, but that's associated with something unpleasant in the past, so that feels bad. And so then there's a response for to have more or have less of that same kind of experience based on that. So what you're seeing here are the links of dependent origination, uh, that specifically that when there uh, is contact of an object of any kind with the sense organ and consciousness of that arises, that's what's called contact. That's the link called pasa or contact. That gives rise to wavement or the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which immediately gives <coughs> rise to tana, uh, usually translated as craving, which is the desire or aversion that we have for it, which immediately gives rise to uh, a more complex process called. Uh, uh, often referred to as clinging or grasping, but it has it has two essential components to it. One is that we take the uh, the we create the momentary reality at that moment in terms of our labels. So we have in that moment we create from this previously undifferentiated experience, a self and an object of desire because it caused pleasure, or conversely, an object of aversion because it caused pain. So uh, this this is the link in dependent origination that follows uh, upon the arising of craving in whatever form is this reification or making real of an eye and an object that the eye is interacting with. And of course, inherent in that, because of the craving, is the wish to, you know, if it's a desirable object, you want to grasp it, hold on to it, get more of it. Which leads inevitably to some kind of action. You know, at the very least, a mental action, but very often also a verbal or a physical action as well. And so this is the next 
link in dependent origination that's called becoming or belonging. So by developing your mindfulness and just watching introspectively what happens one event after another, like you know when you uh, pick up and take a, a sip of tea, you can see the unfolding of contact, feeling, craving, grasping, and becoming. This is this is very revealing. Now, in a moving our scale, our scope up a little bit more from this, that we'll see that over a period of time, these events begin to have cumulative effect, so that as a result of a series of of sensory experiences and with their associated affective response, the mind is conditioned. And you'll see that now the way the mind is behaving has been conditioned by these previous experiences. So the mind might be in a state of desire, of wanting. We've experienced the restlessness of of the compulsion to pursue wanting. Or aversion. It could be negativity. You could be getting in a bad mood, an irritable, impatient. The state of the mind is influenced by these previous experiences. Or you could be meditating and the state that your mind comes into is a state of calm and clarity. So you can see all of these different possible mental states and you realize that the state of your mind which kind of extends over a lot of experiential moments. The state of your mind is is also always changing, but it changes more slowly, so it encompasses a lot of events. And it really sort of adds them up and combines them together. And you might even notice the degree to which some of what influences your present state of mind is linked to things in, in a much more distant past that the immediate events only acted as triggers to bring up things that created that things from weeks ago, months ago, and even years ago that create the state of mind that is present now. And you'll even notice that what you attend to, you know, really, we talk about your reality is your experience, so that means that right there, the, the hinge, the linchpin, the, what creates your reality in the moment begins with what you pay attention to. If you're practicing in this way and you begin to realize that, a very good thing to do is to spend a little while just trying to explore the whole variety of what there is potentially to be attended to in the present moment. The vastness of the present moment is incredible. Just the variety of experiences in your physical body not even taking into account what you might see or hear or smell or taste is so far beyond, you know, there's just so much there. And then you add the other senses to it, and then you add the continuous activity of your mind, mental images, thoughts, memories, and things like that. So there's so much. Your mental state, the state of your mind, is a major factor in determining what you actually pay attention to in the next moment, and the next moment, and the next. So when this awareness comes, what it can flow into is a recognition that this is my reality, and my reality is being created by my mind. And this is the process, this is, this is the process of dependent origination that is constantly generating the reality that I, I live in. And this is a very profound insight, and you can become quite engrossed in watching the flow of this as it, as it unfolds. Please. <laughs> 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 
um, since I've been hearing you and, and being your student, you've talked about paying attention to the breath at the tip of the nostrils, the sensations of that. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe paying attention to the breath as in just the whole body, so yes. that it's not just focused on the breath, and maybe the differences in terms of concentration or so I'm finding I'm, I lean towards doing that a lot, and I just want to know if it's effective or... Oh, you, it, yes. Okay, the question is... I find that it's more... I have a hard time with just the breath of the mm -hmm. nostrils because it feels um, going, whereas if it's the whole body, there's, it brings more life into my practice, it seems, mm -hmm. so... Okay. Right. And, and this is a wonderful observation that you've made. Very, very accurate and made a long time before this. So, all right, the, the, just to restate your question here, uh, make sure I get it right amongst other things, but okay. So I've spoken about focusing the attention on the sensations of the breath at the nose, but you would like me to speak more about being aware of the whole body. And you uh, you're saying that you find that, uh, if I understand correctly, your mind is tending to, tending to go in this direction on its own. And that not only that, you find this to be a good and beneficial thing because uh, whereas staying on the nose can lead into a kind of dullness and being wearing your whole body brings you to more of a, 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 an awake, more fully aware state. Did, did I... Yeah, and, and what your thoughts are on the techniques and, you know... Okay, so... Yeah. Well, you see, the reason that I said that this is a great observation, a very good observation of yours, is that this is, this is a universal phenomenon. It's a very useful one. Uh, first described by the Buddha himself in several different sutras where he gives the same description that uh, a uh, monk gone to a forest, the root of a tree or an empty dwelling, sits down, crosses his legs and with his back straight, places his mindfulness before him. Mindfully he breathes in, mindfully he breathes out. Breathing in a long breath, he knows he breathes in a long breath. And likewise, a short, uh, out, breathing out. Breathing in a short breath, or out of short breath, he's aware of that. And then the next line that comes is, experiencing the whole body, he breathes in. Thus he trains himself. Experiencing the whole body while breathing out, he trains himself. And this is exactly what you're describing. Now this is something that when a person's concentration and mindfulness develop a certain point, is a natural tendency to, for the awareness to expand. And it becomes just seeming easier, more natural to be aware in the whole body. Likewise, when your concentration reaches a certain level, the, one of the problems you have to deal with is the tendency for, uh, e even if you've overcome sleepiness and drowsiness and things like that, a kind of subtle dullness to enter in and forcing the mind state focused on, on the tip of the nose. So by expanding your awareness, it raises the energy level and helps to overcome that uh, dullness. And it also exercises that mental muscle of awareness because if you deliberately try to be aware of a much larger area of the body with the same degree of, uh, of, of clarity and vividness that you previously experienced at a very localized area, then this, this is going to increase the power of your mindful awareness. So this, this is a technique that's used. It's part of the whole, in, in the 10 stages that I've talked to you about, it's a method that we introduce at the fifth stage. At the fourth stage, you've learned to keep uh, all of those thoughts and sensations in the background from taking over your attention, from subtle distractions, distractions from becoming gross distractions, and you've learned to keep from seeking into drowsiness and sleepiness and staying alert. So now you enter into the fifth stage, and that's where we introduce this practice, 
of experiencing the whole body with the breath. And it also carries over very much into the sixth stage where you're trying to bring yourself to a state of uh, single-pointedness and exclusive focus. Uh, And one thing to just mention uh, in this regard is that single-pointed concentration (coughs) doesn't have to mean a small area like your nose. You can have single-pointed concentration on your entire body. What it means is that your uh, the, the focus of your attention is stable, it doesn't move. And it also has a quality of being somewhat exclusive in that it's fully on whatever it's on and you are ignoring whatever is outside of that to the point of, of exclusion. So you can be singly, single-pointedly aware of all of the sensations in your body, in your entire body. And, and that would have the effect of excluding from your awareness uh, traffic noises and, and barking dogs and, and uh, other kinds of sounds, the whatever uh, bodily sensations, itches and, and aches and pressures and things like that. So you're in a state of a single pointedness. So that expanded awareness of the whole body or larger areas is very much a, a, a useful tool and part of the practice. Uh, and, and the proper place for it to fit in is when, uh, when you have developed really good stability of attention. And uh, when you start to sense the mind's naturally wanting to go in that way, then you don't just let it go. It becomes intentional and deliberate, and you push the mind. Rather than just, it's easier to follow the breath uh, at the nose and the chest and the abdomen all at once. You push yourself to be aware of the sensations of the breath, you know, in, in your toes and your fingertips and the, the top of your ears and all these other places that it might otherwise seem absolutely impossible and unimaginable. So sometimes I find myself focusing on that, and I try to defocus. Mm-hmm. I, I, I try to focus on my breathing or on my total body sensations. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times I try to surrender to it and allow it to hurt and to be in that hurt and it be okay to hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's like I keep seeking these different ways of dealing with it, either focusing on it, defocusing from it. Any suggestions? Yes, this is... You you mentioned specifically sitting still, your bottom starts to hurt. After about a half hour. Anybody that sits still begins to experience pain of some sort or discomfort in different parts of your body. And the longer you sit still, the more these become apparent. So in terms of how best to deal with that, you said you mentioned either defocusing or focusing on it. Well, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by defocusing, but the well, first focusing on something else. Yes, focusing, yes. Okay. Now that is that is the that is the best way to deal. That's the first thing that you want to do is you're aware of these these uncomfortable sensations that are developing in your body the longer that you sit. And so at this point, your practice is to remain focused on your meditation object in spite of this. So if it's the sensations of the breath, you just simply are allowing those those sensations are there. So instead of resisting them, you're allowing them to be there but you make the determination that you're going to continue to maintain your attention on the sensations of your breath. Now, at some point, that probably won't be possible anymore. What you'll find is that the sensations are becoming very intrusive. And 
sometimes, you know, even if you're not losing the meditation object, you're paying more attention to the sensations than you are to the meditation object. That's the point at which you want to take those unpleasant sensations as your object. The idea is that the whatever your mind is paying attention to, it is the result of deliberate intention. So when you find that you can't successfully disregard the sensations any longer, take them as your meditation object. Now what's very important about how you take them as a meditation object uh, is, and I think you used the word in regard to this as surrender. That's what you want to do. You want to not resist them, but also you want to remain objective to them. You want to avoid the kind of thinking that that I hurt, my bottom hurts, you know, I don't like this feeling. Instead, objectify it as much as possible, the sensation, and just and just observe it objectively and and investigate it. So very helpful ways to do this with any kind of pain is look at its specific location and whether that's changing or not, its specific size and whether that's changing or not over time. The quality of it, and you know, you can make up labels or not, but but you know, some pains, some discomfort is aching, some is burning, some is stabbing, some is sharp, some is dull, things like that. Familiarize yourself with the quality of it. Familiarize yourself with the intensity, whether it's increasing or decreasing, or alternately increasing or decreasing, or steadily getting more intense or fading or whatever. Just observe it objectively. But take the point of view that you know you are uh, a scientist investigating pain. You have a mental notebook, and you're just you know taking notes on all the different ways that this pain behaves. You know, like a biologist examining a new specimen in the wild. Well, I try not to judge it. I try not to judge it as a bad thing. It simply is what it is. It just simply is what it is. 